And Father, as we look at you this morning in this series about who you are and what you're like, uh, Lord, who's adequate uh, for these things? Certainly not me. And I, I guess, Lord, simply I would ask that your spirit would take truth, which is in your word, and would help us to see you a little more clearly. Lord, I know that to know you is life, and the clearer we see you, Lord, the greater the transformation in us becomes as you change us more and more into the likeness of your Son, the Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Now, if you guys saw the newspapers just a couple of weeks ago, Larry Stewart uh, in Kansas City died January 12th. I didn't know Larry Stewart by name, but I did know him by a public persona that he was given. He was known as the Secret Santa. Does this ring a bell? Let me read Leonard Pitts, uh, Jr., the Miami Herald, wrote this. This actually, I believe, was before his death, but this is what he wrote about uh, Larry Stewart. Santa Claus is named Larry Stewart, and he's a wealthy 58-year-old businessman who lives in a suburb of Kansas City, Missouri. But he used to be a down-on-his-luck 20-something living out of his car. How did he become Santa Claus? Well, it might have begun the day he approached a woman at a church and told her he was destitute. She told him the man who handled destitute people was gone for the day. This is the Christian thing to do, right? Gone for the day, suggested he come back the next day. Stewart said he never felt so low, he never did go back. Maybe it began the time he hadn't eaten for two days. He went into a diner and ordered breakfast, and then when the bill came, pretended he had lost his wallet. The owner of the diner came over. You must have dropped this, he said, and he put a 20 into Stewart's hand. Maybe Larry Stewart became Santa Claus the day he was at a drive through restaurant, feeling dispirited and low at having lost his job the week before Christmas for the second year in a row. He recently told the Associated Press it was cold and the car hop didn't have on a very big jacket. And I thought to myself, I think I've got it bad. She's out there in the cold making nickels and dimes. He handed her a 20 on a tab that couldn't have been more than two or three bucks and told her to keep the change. The woman cried and told him he had no idea what his gift meant. Man, I'm telling you what, it, it just ripped my heart right out. And I thought, wow, I had never had a feeling like that. He liked the feeling so much that he went to his bank and took out $200 in fives and twenties and drove around looking for people who looked like they needed help. That was in 1979, and he's done the same thing every year since, randomly handing out $100 bills, by his estimate, a total of $1.3 million to strangers with what he calls that look, poverty, desperation, need in their eyes. Towards the end, I think it was after Hurricane Katrina, he left Kansas City and he'd actually done this in some other cities around the country, but he only let his name be made public because he got cancer and he knew he was going to die and he wanted his story to be an encouragement to others, so he wanted the liberty to make it known who he was so he could tell people about it. Now whatever else Larry Stewart was or wasn't, he was good. And I don't mean good in the ultimate sense, like God alone is good, you know, when the young guy goes to Jesus and Jesus says no one's good but God alone. Not in that sense, but certainly good in this sense. He was determined to do good to others. He was determined to bless others, to encourage others, and to leave them better than he found them. 
and you, you have a difficult time finding a better definition of either goodness or love than that. And that's what we're looking at this morning. We're in week four of our series called God Is. This week, God Is Love. Uh, we could also say God Is Goodness. If you do a, a study on this, there's a little bit of, uh, not necessarily an argument, but a discussion. Is God goodness and then does is love the action of God's goodness to others you know on the other hand you've got first John 4 that says God is love inherently in himself he's love but goodness and love are are tightly knit together in their qualities and that's what we're talking about this morning God is good God is love let me go through the the more pedantic aspects of our teaching this morning we'll talk about some definitions and we'll look at some scriptures and we'll close on, on some application notes. But when we're talking about good, we're talking about morally excellent, virtuous, kind, benevolent, generous, sympathetic. When we're talking about love, we're talking about a benevolent concern for others. And if it's God's love, we're talking about God's benevolent concern for men, people like you and me. In this sense, the definition of love is the desire or the commitment or the will to do good to another person or to do what's in the best interest of someone else. You guys know love is one of those terms we throw around. It can mean anything under the sun. It can mean how I feel about my chocolate ice cream or how I feel about my wife or anything and everything in between. But in the sense we're using it this morning, love is the commitment or the disposition to do what's in another person's best interest. So that refines what we're talking about quite a bit. It's not a lot of other things, but it is this. It's the commitment to do good to another person. That's what we're talking about. If you read the term love in the Old Testament, you're probably reading the Hebrew kesed, which means uh, oftentimes, especially in the Psalms or Deuteronomy, when it talks about God's faithful love or his loyal love, it's this word kesed. If you're reading Greek in the New Testament, if it's this kind of love, it's agape love, it's benevolent, it's sacrificial, it's oriented towards others. That's the kind of love we're talking about. So goodness and love being this disposition God has, the focus is on God, not necessarily on what's in between us, although we'll talk about that. But it's on God's goodness that overflows, if you will, in a disposition and a determination to bless others or to do what's in our best interest. That's God's goodness, that's God's love. If you remember last week, we said God was perfect. Uh, he was flawless. And since God is perfect and flawless and God is love, that means that God is perfectly loving. He is fully loving. He's perfectly loving. Because God is unchangeable, if you remember way back to week one, because God is eternal, it also means that God's love is unchanging and eternal as well. Last week we talked about in God's perfection that he was righteous and just and we said that that meant that God could never be less than fair. We can't say to God you're not being fair because God cannot not be fair. By his essential nature he can never be less than fair. But on this end today because God is also loving and good God can and most often is better than fair because he's predisposed to do what's in our best interest so he's more than fair. Psalm 119, verse 68 says, God is good, and he does good. We could also say God is loving. God loves, and he's loving. God cannot not love. 
Does this make sense? God cannot not be fair. God cannot not love because it is his nature. Goodness is his nature. Love is his nature. He can't, in a sense, operate against who and what he is. So God is loving because, in a sense, he must be loving. He can't not be loving. I want to flesh this out a little bit in the ways this looks. God is good to everyone and loves us by providing for our needs as well as by giving us good things to enjoy. God's goodness and his love overflows to everyone in the earth. And when I say everyone, I mean everyone. And I know uh, we can talk about uh, people starving in other parts of the world. We can talk about Christians in persecution, etc. But the truth is God's love still overflows. His goodness overflows and benefits every person on this globe. 1 Timothy 6.17 says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. It's out of God's goodness that he overflows, and all the things you and I enjoy in this life, they come from God's benevolent hand. He gives us things just so that we can enjoy them. You know, if you're a parent, sometimes you give your child something just to see their delight. Well, God does that for us too. Out of his goodness, he gives us all good things to enjoy. In Acts 14, 16, and 17, when Paul was speaking in Lystra, he said this, In the generations gone by, God permitted all the nations to go their own ways, but he did not leave himself without witness. This was his witness. He did good. He gave you rains from heaven, fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and with gladness. Paul says to them and to you and I today, when you think about your life, and things as simple as it rains or it snows, the earth is watered, the crops grow, there's food on your table. Paul says all those are God's witness, his testimony to his goodness, that you've received goodness from his hand. That's the testament he's left us. This general revelation, we could say, or God's general provision for mankind. It's a witness to his goodness and his love. Unlike us most of the time, a God is good all the time. And God's loving all the time. Uh, by the way, if I forget to say this later, you know, last week we said God was just, so that meant that he had to judge evil. No way around it. He can't not judge evil. Today we're talking about love, and God can't not be loving. And the divergence, if you will, between the two is there are people who will unfortunately live without Christ by their choice forever. In the end, what they'll get is God's justice. There are people who will trust Christ and they'll receive God's goodness forever because they're in Christ. They'll get that. God is perfectly both, though. And if you read Romans 9, Paul says basically that God's nature and his character are displayed both in the judgment and in the mercy. And basically, our bottom line is, in eternity, we want to be on God's mercy side. That's provided in Christ, which we'll talk about here a little bit more. So when we're talking about this, we've already talked about God's justice and his judgment and his righteousness, and that he has to judge because his righteousness demands it. Today we're focusing on the other side, his goodness and his love. God's good and loving to everyone, even to those who hate him, even to those who reject him. Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, verses 44 and 45 Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. He causes his son to rise on evil and good 
He sends rain on righteous and unrighteous. Basically, Jesus says this, God's love is such that it overflows indiscriminately. It doesn't matter if you're evil or good, you experience God's goodness and love. And he said, if you're God's child, if you share his DNA, his nature and his character, then you'll be loving too as he is. Love is God's essential nature, part of his essential character, then it will be part of your essential character. And when you display that towards those who persecute you, you're just showing that you have your father's DNA, as it were. You love because God is loving. Not just to those who love him, but to those who don't. God's love is indiscriminate in that sense on the good and the bad. This is also why, you know, sometimes you'll do good to someone and they'll throw it back in your face. And you have a temptation to feel ripped off like you shouldn't have been good to them, but you don't need to feel that way at all. Or if you give someone money and then you find out they were scamming you and you think, gosh, I shouldn't have been good to them. No, not at all. We can afford to be, if you will, I don't want to say indiscriminate indiscriminately, but we can afford to be good and to do good and to love, even those who throw it back in our face because that's what God does. You're not the loser because someone rejects your goodness. They are. This church has given money to people in the past and, and you know, you find out it's a scam. And, you know, my thought is that's their loss, not ours. We're doing good like our Father tells us to. And if they choose not to do good, that's their problem, not mine. I want to be shrewd, and I don't mean to imply we should be simple or not wise. But if you've been good and if you've been loving and it's come back in a way that you didn't think it would, that's okay because you're still modeling God's kind of love. That's still the goal. Or Romans 5.8, this becomes even more pointed when Paul says God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Father didn't send the Son to save some nice people. God didn't love us because we were inherently lovable. We're created in His image, and He is love itself. And we bear His image, and we're created for that relationship with Him, loving relationship. But of course, that fellowship's been broken, both in Adam and by our own individual sins. And so there's not the freedom, because God's just, can't associate with sin, there's not the freedom for that love to always be enjoyed or expressed. But God demonstrated his love towards us in sending Christ when we weren't on his side. When we were morally repugnant. You remember Isaiah said the best we have to bring God is our filthy rags. That's the best we have. And when we were wearing these filthy, stinky clothes, if you will, that's when God demonstrated his love to us and sent Christ to die for our sin. God loved us when we were unlovable. But that's because he's loved. And that's the way he overflows even towards those who either hate him or reject him or people just like us who were wearing those filthy clothes and he held his nose as it were and he sent his son to clean us up. God is good to us and loves us and he desires ultimately what's in everyone's best interest. So in 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, Paul says this, of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Uh, Isaiah says too in the Old Testament, Judgment is God's strange work, uh, not odd or peculiar strange, but it's what God does that's not necessarily as typical of his nature and his desires as love is. You'll never read in the scripture that says God is judgment. God judges because he's just, but you do read in the scriptures God is love. God delights in justice and mercy. 
he, he accomplishes justice and righteousness because he must, but he delights in love and mercy. That's, if you will, his strength. God's desire towards all of humanity is that men would be saved, that they'd come to the knowledge of the truth, that they would be restored to relationship with him. That's what's in their ultimate good. That's God's desire, if you will. And then he's gone beside, beyond just desiring that. I could say, I wish you had a million dollars and, and turn around and go the other way. God says, my will is that man be saved. And then he does something about it. John 3.16, hopefully a verse you've heard before. God loved the world so much that he sent his son so that anyone who would believe in him, trust him, and trust themselves to him, wouldn't perish but would have eternal life. God didn't just say, oh, I hope they'll do okay. He didn't just say, my wish for them is their good, that he did something about it. He provided for that transformation and that restoration. In 1 John 4, and John in his first epistle talks a lot about love and God's love and our love. 1 John 4, 9 and 10, John says there, by this the love of God was manifested in us God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. John said, or Jesus says in John's gospel, I didn't come to judge the world, but to bring redemption. Here, it's the same thought. Jesus came into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the atoning sacrifice. Jesus became that element that perfectly atoned for or covered our sins so that we could be restored to a just and righteous God. So God's will is that all be saved. He goes beyond by providing the provision for that salvation in Christ. And God's continuing love for us is guaranteed by Christ's perfect sacrifice in his own power. There's a whole lot we could get into on this, which we won't this morning, but three quick verses. Jeremiah 31.3, speaking to Israel, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, an eternal love, a love that never ends. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. God's love never ends. You know, if, if you ask yourself, how long can God love me? Forever. He is love. He's eternal. His love is eternal. Hebrews 10, 14, we'll talk a little bit more about this as we wind down, but Hebrews 10, 14, I just bring in... Uh, it says this anyway, for by one offering he's perfected for all time those who are sanctified. By one offering he's perfected for all time those who are sanctified. When you read the epistle to the Hebrews, the writer wants you to understand, especially if you were a Jew, that Jesus is better than anything you had in the past under Judaism, under the old covenant. And so he shows Jesus is better than the old priests, better than the old offerings, etc. But the point of all of it is to say, Jesus offered himself once for all time. And that one offering is the perfect covering, atone, atoning sacrifice for your sins and mine. So by one offering, he's perfected for all time. Those are sanctified. We've talked about this term before. It just means to be made holy like God. God can show you his eternal unchanging love because Christ's sacrifice perfectly covers your sin. My deficiency is covered forever because Jesus' one-time offering for sin was perfect. So if you've trusted in Christ, he's made you perfectly holy. You remember we said it's God provides his righteousness. His righteousness can't be less than perfect. That's what he gives us in Christ. He's provided his perfect righteousness to us, 
And because of that, he's free to love us eternally. How long will God's love for me last? Eternally. Why? Because the sacrifice that covered my sins, that allowed God to declare me just and righteous in his sight, was a perfect sacrifice. It's taken the issue of sin away. There's nothing that obstructs God's love for me anymore. God's love for you and me in Christ is eternal and unchanging because Christ perfectly met God's righteous demands for our sins. It's taken care of. Remember, Jews kept going to the temple Sabbath after Sabbath, morning and night, lamb each, two lambs each day, etc. Why? Because sin was still an issue. Jesus offered himself once, perfectly atoning for sin, putting sin away as an issue. God's love, therefore, is free to be dispensed to us with no change. And then last, Romans 8, 38 and 39. Romans 8 is a great chapter, including this topic and some more. But Paul says there, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, whether you live or die, angels, good angels, or principalities, bad angels, demons, things present, things going on in your life now, things to come, things in your future, powers, height, depth, go any place you want, go high, go low, wherever you could go, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, he makes this list so you get the picture. What can separate a Christian from the love of Christ? Nothing. You enjoy, you're the recipient, you're the object of God's love eternally in Christ. Nothing can separate you from God's love. Sometimes we get confused too. Um, if God gave Christ for you and I, he won't withhold anything else. If, if God the Father pays the ultimate ransom cost to bring you back to his family, he's not going to withhold groceries from you or dinner or clothes. Paul says in Romans 8, 32, He who didn't spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? God's given you the best good he can, Christ and redemption. And if he's given that, his love and goodness are also displayed in the myriad of other ways his goodness provides for you. You know, in Hebrews, uh, the writer there says, if you've got food and covering, be content with these because he, Christ, has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus says to you and I, you've got me, don't worry about anything else. And on this earth, if you've got enough to eat and covering, you're good to go anyway. You know, we're here for a short time, and then we're gone. So food and covering, we've got Christ, we've got everything we need. God's provision is rich and full. We're going to talk in the last week of this series um, about some of the conundrums of life. If God is omnipotent, if he's loving, merciful, etc. And I'm telling you this morning, he's all good and he's all loving. Then what about these issues in my life? And I'm not going to address those this morning. Sometimes we look at life and we say, uh, I don't see the love. I'm not feeling the love, Lord. You know, uh, all kinds of suffering and loss. You know, any, anybody who lives life on the earth, remember Jacob uh, tells Pharaoh, Pharaoh sees this old guy, and, and here's Jacob. He's a patriarch favored by God, got all the kids, got all the blessings on earth. And remember what he says to Pharaoh? 130 years, few and bitter are the days of my sojourn. That's life on this earth. It's tough. 
It's tough for Christians that God loves and that God showers his goodness down on. And this has to do with the things, God's sovereignty. I guess the bottom line, all I would say about this this morning is this. The God who gives us his love unconditionally and his goodness overflows his goodness onto us basically says this in the same passage in Romans 8. He says that he will take even all the bad things, the deficient things that happen in your life and mine, they'll pass through his hand, and he'll take even the things that are bad in themselves, and somehow he'll turn them around so that they actually are a benefit to you. You and I don't always see how that works, and, and sometimes we just tell God, you know, I don't believe it, I don't see it, I don't feel it, whatever. But that's what he says, he's a God who can't lie, and he says to Christians, anybody who knows his son, the Lord Jesus, he says, whatever comes to you in life, I'll take it and I'll turn around and I'll make it for your good, for your benefit, which is the definition of God's love. It's to do what's in our best interest. So even when life isn't going the way you want it to or thought it would, and you're confused, don't let that confusion trick you into thinking God's not loving you. He's still loving you. He's still being good to you. And somehow, whether it's in this life, in time, or in eternity, he'll take those things that happen in your life and he'll turn them around so that they are to your benefit, whether you see that going on right now or not. What do you do with this? God's good and he does good. God's love. Where do I go with this? What difference does it make to my life? Um, the first thing is this. You know, we get God's uh, general benevolence if we're on earth breathing. You know, the sun rises, we get food, we draw breath. It's God's goodness. God's eternal goodness, though, is for those who've entrusted themselves to His Son. If somebody says, what do I need to enjoy God's goodness and love? I'd say you've got to believe in His Son. That's what Jesus said. Believe is a word that gets thrown around a little bit. The thought is to trust. It's not to say 2 plus 2 equals 4. It's to say, I heard what he said. I believe who he is, and I've entrusted myself to his care. I've come under the new covenant. I've accepted the blood of the Lamb as the covering for my sin. There's lots of ways you can describe this or define it, but it basically means only that you're trusting in Christ. You're not working your way to heaven. You're not rejecting him. You're simply saying, Christ, I entrust myself to your care. I trust that you're, you've covered my sin, that I'm okay with the Father by your doing. That's my trust. That's the only qualification for eternal enjoyment of God's love and goodness. Um, if you don't uh, remember anything else that's said this morning about this aspect of God's love, uh, this is the, the bottom line. Uh, you don't deserve God's love. You didn't earn God's love. You can't do anything to keep God's love. God can't love you any more than he does now, and his love will never change. It's kind of a mouthful, but I'm convinced that most Christians live life, the entirety of their life on the earth, based on a motive of fear. And it goes something like this. In our sinful condition, um, we strive, most of us, all our life, to be significant and accepted. Humankind's basic need, because we're created in the image of God for fellowship with Him, our basic need is to be known and loved. We, we have to know that someone knows us fully because if they find out what a creep we really are, then they wouldn't love us anymore. So they got to know us. But if they just know us and don't love us, what good is that? What if they hate us? Our ultimate need is to be known and loved. That's it. 
Well, see, we've got that in Christ. God says, hey, you'll never get there on your own, but I'll take care of it and I'll adopt you into my family and I'll give you my own DNA. I'll, call, I'll give you a new birth. You're my children. So now I accept you fully. I love you as much as I ever can love you. And I accept you. You've got perfect standing in my eyes. Nothing stands between you and me, God says. What do most of us do with our lives? We try to earn God's acceptance and, and God's love. And we, we're falling back on this model of life that comes from our sinful condition in this body in which we're trying to get what we've already got. You and I didn't earn God's love. You can't do anything to keep it. It was independent of you. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. You and I are objects of God's love. It's not based on who or what we are. It's based on who and what He is. So it can't change. And if Christians, as a motive and as a viewpoint of life, can get past a motive of fear, I'm going to earn God's love, I'm going to find acceptance by measuring up to a standard, you're living life just like the Jews under the Old Covenant. Knowing that we're accepted in Christ is supposed to liberate us to live life joyfully, peacefully, to honor Christ because we are accepted and we are loved. The problem is most of us, we're not getting there because we're not getting to first, first base. We're still we're accepted in Christ. We know where we're going when we die, but we're still working like we don't know Christ. In my mind, I think of it like this. If I'm on Lake Shawnee and I want to get from one side to the other and I get in the rowboat and I start pulling on the oars against the wind and against the waves, I'm working hard, going nowhere. And God says, get out of the rowboat, get in the sailboat. You know, let the wind drive you across. Most of us are in the rowboat, working hard, getting nowhere. God says, get out of the rowboat, get in the sailboat. You're already there. The work is not for us to perform. As objects of God's love, we receive it. We don't warrant it. We don't earn it. We don't maintain it. <clears throat> you can't lose God's love. Um, William R. Newell had a few things to say in his commentary on Romans. Let me read a few of them. He says this, There being no cause in the creature why grace or love should be shown, the creature, that's you and me, must be brought off from trying to give cause to God for his care. God loves you because he's love. You didn't create his care. You don't have to maintain it. He has been accepted in Christ, which is his standing. Is Christ acceptable to the Father? If you're a Christian, you're in Christ, you're acceptable to the Father. He's not on probation. How many of you feel at times like, if I blow it, a little I'm okay. If I blow it big, I'm not okay. Newell says, you're not on probation. See, your sins are perfectly covered. There's no probation. You're God's children. As to his life past, all the sins of my past, it doesn't exist before God. He, you and I, died at the cross, and Christ is his life. Grace once bestowed is not withdrawn, for God knew all the human exigencies beforehand. His action was independent of them, not dependent on them. Let me ask, does this ever go through your mind? Um, <clears throat> I may feel really holy one Sunday, and I may feel like I'm on top of the world. And I'm a good guy, and God knows it, and I know it. And then you know the next day what happens? 
I do the nosedive. Morally, I check out. And you know, I feel I'm in the cellar. I feel terrible. Now, two things. You know, God loves me as much on that Sunday, no different than he does on Monday morning. Now, there might be some fellowship issues. God's not restrained towards me, but I might be restrained towards God. That's when I go and confess my sin and get restoration face to face with my dad again. But did God know on Sunday what my sin would be on Monday morning? Mm -hmm. When Jesus died on the cross, how many of your sins had been committed? None. You know, you and I get this time warp where we don't get it. All your sins were future when Jesus died for your sins. God knows the end from the beginning. He knows every wretched thing you'll ever do in your life now. And he loves you anyway. Do you see what I'm saying? The conditional aspect, you can't do anything God doesn't know about. It's not possible. God's already poured out his goodness and his love on you. You can't do anything in the future he doesn't already know. If Christ's atonement for you is perfect, you're in. You're good to go. You can get over spinning your wheels trying to get God to love you or repenting strongly enough to get him to love you again. His love never changes. Your enjoyment of the benefit of that love changes because we lose the, the benefit of that face-to-face -face fellowship, if you will. But God doesn't change. All your sins and mine were in the future. God knows everything I'll do, every wretched thing I'll do till the day I die. There's no surprises. He loves me anyway. Newell says, to believe and to consent to be loved while unworthy is the great secret. You know, most of us, we want to get ourselves lovable. And then we'll tell God it's okay for you to love me. Or, you know, we'll think to each other, if I can kind of make this minimum standard, then I could feel okay about someone else loving me. But Newell's got it right. To consent to be loved while unworthy is the great secret. But this is God's grace. This is his love and his goodness. He loves us in spite of what we were or do. To expect to be blessed, this kind of goes even further, but it's the same thought, though realizing more and more our lack of worth. You know, the closer to God you grow over the years, the more Christ-like you become, the more clearly you see your own deficiencies because you have better <laughs> moral eyesight. You know, when I'm a young Christian, I think uh, these are issues in my life and everything else is okay. You know, the longer I grow as a Christian, I realize I don't have anything together. It's all a mess. I'm just confused. You know, as a young Christian, I think I'm better off than I am. But no. And even though the more, the longer I walk with Christ, the more, let's say, I, I bear Christ's image and, and realize, though, how far I'm removed from him, I should be expecting to be blessed more and more. See, because I know God's love is constant. So as I grow more and more in understanding his love, I understand God means to bless me. You know, if an omnipotent God is determined to bless you, to benefit you, to do you good, you know you're going to be blessed and benefited. And you're going to get his goodness because you can't oppose an unopposable force. To rely on God's chastening hand is a mark of his kindness. Back to that point, sometimes we don't like what's going on in our life. But if you're Christian, if you're God's child, Newell says, hey, even when tough times come in, or even if you know your dad's disciplining you, 
you know that it's for your good and it's only because he loves you. Hebrews 12 makes it plain. Yeah, Hebrews 12. The writer there says, if you don't get discipline, it's because you're not his child. So even when God is chastening you, whatever that looks like, they say there, that's a mark of his love also. That's not rejection. That's grace. That's God's love towards you and I. I'm convinced that the degree to which we live poor, shallow lives, which I think is most of Christianity, most of Christians in the world, uh, is the degree to which we fail to apprehend this truth that God is love, God is good, and he's pouring out that goodness and love on us. It's unconditional, it's unearned, it's unmerited, and nothing you or I do apart from entrusting ourselves to Christ has anything to do with it. In eternity, you know if you're a hunter, Maybe not many of you are, but you know if you're hungry and you get that big buck, you mount him on your wall. And then when people come in, they, oh gosh, look at that thing he got. It's your trophy. Well, see, the truth is in eternity, you and I, we're going to be those trophies on the wall. And God's going to say, these are the trophies to my grace and goodness. And you and I will be living examples, living displays of God's goodness and God's love. Trophies to his grace. Uh, quickly, let me close with the last two things. Knowing something about God's love. You know, the, the natural thing for us would be to love God back. To love God back. God doesn't need anything from us inherently, but Jesus says, you know, if there's one great commandment, what is it? Love God. Why is that? It's because it's in your best interest. God is the ultimate object of anyone's affection because of his perfection. So for us to love God, we're doing the only sensible thing we can. He's poured his love into us, and we've responded by saying thank you and loving him back. This only makes sense. God's love in us, though, shouldn't stop there. First John, uh, you know, John's a softy and a hearty at the same time. You read his epistle, and it's all love and light on one hand, and, and boy, he's a hammer on the other. And, you know, he says this in First John. He says, if you don't love the brother that you see, how can you say you love God that you don't see? In other words, the reality of God's love in us, it's his character and nature. It's in us by his spirit. The fruit of the spirit is love. God's love in us should overflow. That benevolent goodness, kindness, and love, determination to bless others should overflow from us to others as well. This is not natural. This is not tied to our natural response to things. You know, when someone cuts you off in traffic, when they call you a not nice name, when they grade your paper harshly, whatever it is and you know that first response is you're mad you're ticked and you want to get them that's not the god love thing that that's what we're born with but we reject that initial temptation god's love should be the response this should be what we do towards others even those who don't like us and you know in my in my thought loving and praying for those who aren't nice to you this is just an encouragement to you that you bear your father's DNA. That you bear your father's spiritual, moral character. You're just like him. You're loving those who aren't loving you because God's love is in you and it's overflowing to others. Larry Stewart's a great example of goodness. Someone who is determined to bless others. He's called the secret Santa because, of course, St. Nick, St. Nicholas, Santa Claus... You know, it's the guy who gives out good things to others. You, you and I have it far better in God. You know, he's the ultimate love. He's ultimate goodness. 
and he is determined to pour out that love and grace and goodness on you and me. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'll give each one of us a little bit of the ability to perceive your love more fully so that we can leave behind deficient motivations for this life. That, Lord, we can get out of rowboats going nowhere and can jump in sailboats powered by you. Lord, I pray that you help us up even a little bit to see you more clearly, to appreciate your love, and, Lord, to live lives that are simply joyful, exuberant expressions of thanks and love back to you for all you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.